Hey, it's so good to see you this morning. Let me add my word of welcome to you, and I'm so glad that you're here. And yes, a good-looking attendance today. Now, consider next week that we're all going to be combined with no 8.30 service. And so what I really am going to love is seeing some of you normal 11 o'clock folks coming in and trying to find your normal seat and somebody else sitting in it. Hey, that'd be great. And so I, I, told, uh, I told you last week that we're going to have to issue the SOS, which is scoot over some. When you get here next week, make sure you fill up the row from the middle to the end instead of the end to the middle, and uh, that'll be great. And so if we have to pull out chairs, that'll be great. We had a great crowd, I thought, at 8.30 this morning, too, uh, for the 8.30 service. And so I love it when we can all be together. That'll be a great, great service next week. And so um, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 17. And last week, I really started a three-part series on gratitude and thanksgiving. And since this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving Day, I just um, thought it um, really important that we just take some time and devote ourselves to a study of this subject of gratitude and why it's so important uh, in the Christian life. It's been said that gratitude is one of the loftiest forms of thought that our minds can engage in, and it's really something that is so appropriate when you consider the God-supplied, God-blessed reality that is true of every waking moment of your life. Do you know that God is just always giving? Just by virtue of who He is, He is always giving, and you and I are always recipients of all that, that, give, that God gives. Uh, my life, your life, you think about your health, uh, you think about all that is involved in just your body uh, functioning, uh, the oxygen that you have to breathe, uh, the capacity that your lungs have to be able to draw in that oxygen, the heart that's constantly pumping in your chest and pumping blood throughout your veins. You know, God is sustaining all of that unconsciously in your life. I bet you didn't ask him for air to breathe this morning when you woke up. Well, depending on, you know, if you've had COVID, you might have been, or if you were at a cold or something. But the bottom line is, all of us are recipients of the mercies of God and the blessings of God that we didn't ask for. Nonetheless, God gives on a regular basis just because of who he is. And so gratitude really is the only proper response to the character of God. G.K. Chesterton said this, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. In other words, he's saying that there's nothing quite like the joy that comes from intentionally cultivating a thankful heart and a grateful heart in my life and your life. And if we're to be wise, you and I would make gratitude a priority and a daily mindset for living. And so if gratitude is to be characteristic of my life, then largely it's going to depend upon what I think about on a regular basis. You know, the scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So that largely your life and your attitude will largely be the result of what you put into your mind and what you fixate upon. And so how important is it for us as Christian men and women to constantly 
dwell upon the goodness of God, the character of God, all of the good things that God has supplied you and me with on a daily basis. You know, last week we looked at Psalm 100. And the psalmist said that we're to come into his presence with singing in our hearts. We're to enter his gates with thanksgiving. We're to come into his courts with praise. and We're to know that the Lord is God. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. He's the one who has made us. And then the psalmist concludes by saying that he is good. That is, God's mercy is everlasting. His truth, his faithfulness endures to all generations. And then over in Psalm 103, David says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then in the psalm, he goes on and lists about 20 specific benefits that he's been the recipient of, and he's a grateful worshiper. And so as he's reflecting on the Lord and as he's thinking about God and his goodness, his mind and his heart is filled with gratitude. And so I learned from that, oftentimes feelings stem from thinking. Which, by the way, this is just an aside. I didn't mention this at 8.30, but consider yourself blessed at 11 that the Lord laid this upon my heart. But... That's why when we come together for worship, you know the scripture says that we're to be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And what's the difference with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs? Well, you think about it, psalms, this is straight scripture. And so there's an element of our worship where we ought to just be reading scripture, singing scripture, thinking about scripture, the truth of God. And then hymns, you know what hymns are, what they're different from spiritual songs? Hymns are songs that uh, reflect theological truth about God. You know that we need to sing songs together when we come together that are hymns that we're singing about God? I'm talking about theologically rich hymns that are expressing truth about who God is. I need to be reminded of that on a, on a regular basis, and so do you. And then I'm also to sing spiritual songs. Uh, Spiritual songs, I would say these are songs that I sing directly to God. And so there's a sense in which our worship gatherings in the corporate sense should reflect straight scripture, rich theological truth that we put to music and it reminds us of who God is and then I'm able to sing directly to God in response as a result of gratitude that wells up in my heart. I'll tell you what, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can fall into this mentality where we think, well, we've just got to appeal strictly to a person on an emotional basis in order to get that person to move in some capacity. Listen, that's the world's way of, of doing things. You want to know what will really move you as a worshiper of God? It's when you're reminded of truth about God that then leads you to sing directly to God as a grateful worshiper. That's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 103, Psalm 100, many other wonderful passages that you can read. And so gratitude, folks, this is something that ought to be just regular and characteristic of my life as as a worshiper. And honestly, you know that the opposite of that is ingratitude. 
Uh, ingratitude is something that just seems to come natural to me uh, as, as a sinner, as someone with a fallen nature. And so to combat against ingratitude, I've got to intentionally cultivate a spirit of gratitude. And I do that by fixing my mind upon who God is and thinking about all that he's done in my life. Now, I've said all of that to just simply say, look at Psalm, or excuse me, Luke 17. Because in this passage of Scripture, uh, we find a remarkable story of gratitude as it's seen in perhaps in, in contrast with ingratitude. Now, by the way, you know that ingratitude is not just something that's true of our time, but it's endemic to fallen humanity. I mean, never before have people had so much uh, and yet so ungrateful for all of the abundance that we're surrounded with. Kind of reminds me of a funny story I heard about two guys who were friends, and they happened to bump into each other one day. And one of the guys was just in this foul and just sour mood. I mean, wasn't even able to work up a smile and greet this chance encounter with his friend. And so noticing the man had a downcast, sour look, the friend asked this question, what seems to be the trouble, buddy? And so the man responded and said, well, my uncle died three weeks ago and left me $40,000. Well, the man was kind of puzzled by that response, and he said, really? To which the guy responded and said, yeah, then the week after that, a cousin I hardly knew, he died and left me $80,000. And still just had this sour expression on his face. And he said, yeah, then last week, one of my great aunts passed away and left me a quarter million dollars. To which the guy, I mean, he was just, just absolutely perplexed. And he said, you got to be kidding me. Why such a sour, long face? To which the man responded, well, this week, nobody died. And I mean, that just kind of sums up the attitude of ingratitude, doesn't it? I mean, where you just can't see the forest for all of the trees and your priorities get out of whack and you forget who God is and you forget all that God has done. Maybe you fixate on something that you don't have or something that you've not seen done in your life and before you know it, you find yourself weighed down by ingratitude. And so that's why this passage from Luke 17 is so very important. Because here we find a biblical example of true gratitude that comes to recognize the source of blessing in Jesus Christ. And it's the story of 10 men who lived with a serious disease known as leprosy. And yet, they have this miraculous, life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus. But of those 10 men, there's only one who returns to offer thanks or thanksgiving to Jesus, who's the source of his blessing. And so this passage really shows me how gratitude is rare, often hard to find. I'm not suggesting that this is a formulaic equation here, but think about it. Gratitude may be as rare as one in 10. And so let's look at what the passage says, beginning in verse number 11. The Bible says, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. 
And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And now he was a Samaritan. Now pay attention to that phrase there, he was a Samaritan. This would have been something extremely shocking to Luke's uh, Jewish readership. Verse 17, Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? That word foreigner there translates a Greek word. That's the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament. And specifically, it's used to refer to someone who was, who was outside of the covenant blessing that belonged to uh, Abraham's descendants, the covenant nation. Here's someone who's not a member of the covenant community, who's a Samaritan, someone who's an outsider, and yet this outsider gets in on the grace of God and gets it, while the other nine, who very well may have been Jewish, fail to give thanks. That's the idea that's going on here. So this is really a shocking story. And so Jesus says to the man in verse 19, rise and go your way, for your faith has made you well. I want to speak from this subject this morning. Where are the nine? Uh, the very same question that Jesus asks there in verse 17, where are the nine? Referring to those who were also recipients of God's grace, just like this Samaritan they too were healed, but there's only one who shows real gratitude for the grace of God that's experienced in his life. Now, as far as background is concerned, this particular setting, uh, the setting for this scene takes place as Jesus and his disciples were on their way to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this is the sixth time by this point in the Gospel of Luke where we read of the determination of Jesus to make his way to Jerusalem. It's almost as if there's a tension that's building as you read what Luke writes here where Jesus is doing ministry in Capernaum and Galilee and, and Judea, but he's making his way to the city of Jerusalem because it's going to be Jerusalem where he's going to have confrontation with the religious establishment. It's going to be in Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be handed over to be crucified. And all of that is part of the Father's redemptive plan. And so this tension is building here. And, and one more time, Luke wants us to know Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, which in a very real way may mean that his own death is on his mind. And so as he's passing that way, he, he happens to go through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now this too would have been unusual for Luke's readers because there was a really a hostile relationship between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't have any dealings with the Jews. And so that animosity was so deep-seated and, and deeply rooted that when Jews wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, uh, instead of going the shortest route directly through Samaria... They would have crossed Jordan and, and, and rather go up the desert road, taking them way out of their way to get where they were going because they didn't want to pass through Samaria. The animosity was that real. And so here you see Jesus who's going against that social convention of his day and he's passing through the region of Samaria. And so this is Luke's way of basically saying that he and his disciples, they're in the middle of nowhere 
And as they just happened to enter this certain unnamed village, Jesus is met by these 10 leprous men. And so you look at this on a map, the, the region, the entire region is remote. There, there are no large Jewish population centers. And so that would have been an ideal location for these 10 leprous men to form a leper colony that was separate from really the rest of society. Now I want you to notice a few things from this passage. First of all, notice with me the dreadful condition known as leprosy. We learn something about uh, leprosy when we read the Bible. Oftentimes you see that word mentioned, but leprosy was really a, a, a skin disease, almost an umbrella term that represented a whole host of various diseases. And so the reason that these 10 lepers are standing at a distance, as we're told there uh, in verse 12, was because leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in the world during biblical times. Once you had been diagnosed with leprosy in ancient Israel, you then suffered the worst of all kinds of, of social isolation. I mean, we're not talking a quarantine that would last a week or two, you know, like what you and I perhaps experienced back in 2020 and the pandemic and that kind of thing. You're talking about a quarantine that may last the remainder of your days. Unless the miraculous take place in your life, unless you're healed of the disease in some way, there's no way for you to rejoin society. Uh, you, you sort of become a social pariah. You're, you're separated from the rest of the covenant community. You're separated from your family. You're separated from the religious institutions of the day. I'll be honest, we got just a little small taste of that just a few years ago, didn't we? And, and it wasn't pleasant. Imagine that's the way you have to live indefinitely because of your physical condition. And so that sort of helps you sympathize with these men who are isolated from everyone else in society. The only fellowship you could have with another human being would be with other lepers. And so that's why you found uh, these leper colonies in certain remote locations because that's the only way that they could have had companionship. And so as the disease would take its toll out on a person's body, oftentimes uh, sores and scabs would form on a person's body. Uh, they, they perhaps could lose their fingers, their nose. The nerve endings could become dead in, in their body to where they could experience something that would cause you and I pain, but because the leprosy had so killed their nerves, they were somewhat immune to the pain, and in that way, it was really life-threatening. All of that, perhaps, is being faced by these men. Now, you go to Leviticus chapter 13 and chapter 14, you'll discover that the law of Moses had some very specific instructions for those who had contracted this disease known as leprosy. Uh, if they had a particular skin disease, they had to show themselves to the priest, and it could be that the priest would say, well, you've got to remove yourselves from the rest of the covenant community. So that Leviticus 13.45 says that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothing, let the hair of his head hang loose, shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And the law demanded that he would remain unclean as long as he had the disease and he would dwell alone. His dwelling place will be outside the camp. 
One Jewish scholar said it this way, as the leper passed by with his clothes torn, his hair disheveled, the lower part of his face and lips covered, it was as if he were going to his death, having read his own burial service. The mournful words, unclean, unclean, which he uttered, proclaimed to everyone that his was both living and moral death. And so understand here, this is a serious condition, and you can see why the Bible often uses leprosy as a fitting illustration of what sin does in a person's life. My life, your life. If leprosy as a disease separated people from their fellow man, let me tell you what sin does, folks. Sin separates us from a holy God. Uh, Sin puts up a barrier between man and God, and there's nothing that man can do to save himself from his dreadful condition. If there's to be any hope for me and you whatsoever, God has to do something in grace, in mercy. He's got to condescend and come to where I am to meet me in my helpless condition. And the gospel tells me that's exactly what he's done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And so all of that is sort of the background here, and it helps you understand where these 10 men in Luke 17 are coming from. This was their experience. Now, in addition to this dreadful condition of leprosy, notice a second thing from the passage, and it's the merciful compassion of Jesus. Somehow, somewhere, these these 10 men, they've heard that Jesus is passing through the region, and they approach him from a distance, and listen, Death is very much on their minds, their condition very much on their minds. But listen, perhaps Jesus, who's making his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die for our sins, his own death is on his mind. And so here is the answer to their problem. Here's the answer to the problems of the world. Here's the answer to the problem of my spiritual leprosy and your spiritual leprosy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he's a merciful, compassionate Savior and seeking and saving the lost. That's the reason that he came into the world. And so here we see him doing just that. Now you'll notice that the, the verse 12 says that these were 10 lepers. If you're using the ESV, perhaps another translation may read it differently. But literally the Greek text says this, um, Jesus was met by 10 men who had leprosy. Luke uses the word aner there, which is a masculine noun, plural in number, and it's Luke's way of acknowledging their humanity. It's easy for us to say, oh, here's 10 lepers. Let me go on about our business. But you see, it's something altogether different to say, here are 10 men who are debilitated by this dreadful disease. Ten men whom we're told, they're crying out to Jesus from a distance and they're saying, Master, have mercy on us. Now, perhaps the first question that should come to your mind is this question, how did they even know who Jesus was to begin with? I mean, they didn't have cell phones. There was no Facebook or internet. None of the technology that you and I have to sort of keep us in the know They don't have daily interaction with healthy people, but somehow the news that Jesus is passing through their region gets to these guys. And I think the answer to that question, how do they find out uh, about Jesus, I think you can answer that easily from Scripture because 
what Jesus did in terms of his ministry in Galilee was nothing short of the miraculous. And so the stories of those miracles would have spread like wildfire all throughout every inch of the territory. And by the way, this was not the Lord's first interaction with leprosy. If you go back just a few chapters, uh, go to Luke chapter 5, and and, and I want to show you something. That in his Galilean ministry, perhaps even in the cities of the Decapolis, Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says that while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's a statement of faith, isn't it? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, if you can, I hope you will. No, he says, if you will, I know that you can. That is, I recognize you have all power. And I recognize that if it's in keeping with your will and purpose, you can make me clean. And so verse 13 says that Jesus stretches out his hand and touches the man. Now, don't just read that and, and, and keep on going. Think about what that meant. Where those who had leprosy were to be kept away from everyone else, no interaction with healthy human beings whatsoever. You would certainly not want to touch someone with leprosy. Here you see Jesus reaching out and touching the man who has this dreadful condition of leprosy. And the Lord says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, I just have a feeling here that at some point, word gets out. Which, by the way, word can't help but get out. Word gets out. And so now, several chapters later, here we see Jesus passing through the the border regions of Samaria and Galilee. And here are these 10 lepers who are crying out to the Lord, would you have mercy on us, Jesus? And verse 13 says, he saw them. Man, I could preach a sermon just right there. He saw them. He didn't look past them. He didn't overlook them. He didn't ignore them. He didn't pretend that they weren't there. No, the Bible says he saw them. He didn't just see their sickness. He didn't just see their dreadful effects of leprosy, their emaciated bodies. No, he saw the men. He sees the ruined members of Adam's race. Those who had been made in the image of God, those who no doubt had been disfigured and defaced by leprosy, who nonetheless bore the image of their creator. And so here you have the creator incarnate himself who's looking with compassion upon the misery of the very ones he came to save. Now, folks, isn't that the story of the gospel? It's what separates Christianity from any other story that the world has ever known because here we have a God who's condescended to where we are, who's entered our world with all of its brokenness and all of its leprosy and all of its sin and the manifestations of sin, and he's entered our mess and came to where we are and looks with compassion upon those that he came to save. When others would have tucked tail and run, and looked in the opposite direction, Jesus looks at the men. And so, notice how he responds to these men. On other occasions where we see people who are sick coming to Jesus, asking for healing, 
Perhaps Jesus reaches out his hands and touches them. Or he says something like this, be healed. Is that what happens here? No, that's not what happens at all. No, Jesus simply says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Again, if we were to go back to Leviticus, it was the priest who was authorized to make the diagnosis of leprosy. And let's say a person uh, was recovering from that, it would be the priest's inspection to free that person from their social isolation. And so the priests were the one who were doing the examination. They're the health care consultants. But the priests are not the ones who bring the healing. Our generation needs to remember that fact. Are you listening to me? Where does healing come from? Ultimately from the great physician himself, right? So Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And so the Bible says, as they were going, they were cleansed. As they went, verse 14, they were cleansed. Which means the moment they turn to leave Jesus' presence, they're still lepers. But somewhere along the way, they're instantaneously transformed. And they, perhaps they can look and they say, well, man, I didn't have fingers, but now I've got 10 digits. I look at my skin where I had scabs and sores and my body was emaciated. Now it looks like a baby's skin. There's something wonderful that's happened and it's the miraculous healing, transforming power of God at work in their life. But notice that the miracle doesn't happen until the men obey the word of Jesus. Go show yourselves to the priests. And so they go and as they're going in obedience, they're changed. Let me tell you something. This ought to encourage you because some of you, you've got a testimony that's perhaps unlike other testimonies. And sometimes you may think that your Christian testimony is inferior to someone else who has a different testimony that you think sounds better. Some of you have the leper of Luke 5. You have that testimony. Jesus touched me. I can take you to the time. I can take you to the place. I can tell you the day, the hour, the time, and what I had for breakfast that morning. Now, some of you got that testimony, but others of us don't have that testimony. Others of us perhaps have the testimony of these lepers in Luke 17 that somehow in the process of going, <laughs> I was changed. And the point is, it's not so much the details of the testimony, but the fact that you were changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the power of a Christian testimony. So don't be envious. Say you came to faith in Jesus when you were a child and you think you don't have a testimony like someone else. No, let me tell you, if you've experienced the grace of God, if you've tasted and seen that God is good, if Jesus Christ has changed your life, it doesn't matter if you were seven or 70, let me tell you, you've got a story to tell somebody. And so as they went, they were cleansed. So here you see the dreadful condition known as leprosy. You've got the merciful compassion of Jesus. But then notice a third thing here, and I really want to really just hone in on this as we close. Notice the grateful character of a Samaritan. All 10 of these men were the recipients of the Lord's mercy and his compassion. All 10 were cleansed of their leprosy as they went in obedience to the command of Jesus. And yet, only one of these men stops, turns back, comes back to Jesus, 
falls at Jesus' feet and says, thank you, Lord. One in 10. Now, what about the other nine? You know, where are the nine? Why didn't they turn back and say, you know what? All the ceremony, we, we can take care of the ceremony a little bit later. Let, let me just, let's go, let's go say thank you to the one who's responsible for our miracle. Maybe the other nine, they couldn't wait to get to the priest because they knew that if they got to the priest and the priest pronounced them clean, they could immediately go home again. They could see their wives again. They could embrace their children again. Or they could go to the synagogue again. And yet one of these men is so overcome by his healing that he turns back to say thank you because he understands that Jesus is the one who has healed him. And so his gratitude then is expressed. And so listen, thanksgiving is in operation in this man's life. Now, I'll be honest, the other nine men, I have no doubt that they perhaps felt gratitude. That is to say, they were, they were experiencing feelings, no doubt, of being, they're, they're healed. And there was a joy and there was a celebration, no doubt. But folks, I want you to listen to me very carefully because thanksgiving is different than just experiencing feelings of gratitude. Thanksgiving is re it's really the expressions of gratitude to someone else. You know the difference? You can feel grateful, and yet if you never take the step to express that gratitude to the one to whom you're thankful, it's not really thanksgiving. And I, again, I think about the world, you know, this time of year, and, and, and even corporations, and you hear the, oh, let's just be thankful people, thankful people. And I want to ask the question, well, to whom are we to be thankful people? Because gratitude is not simply for something. This man is not just simply thankful for his healing. No, he is thankful to the master for his healing. He's not just simply thankful for the gift. He's thankful to the giver of the gift. And so do you see the difference? And that's why you and I as Christian men and women should of all people on the planet be grateful, thankful people because we know the master. We know the giver of the gift. And gratitude is more caught up with the one who's responsible for the blessing than the blessing itself. We recognize that the gifts of God in our lives are just merely signposts that direct us to the source of all true blessing. And so I want to close, but I just want to just show you a few things about this thankful leper in closing and his gratitude and how I pray that this Thanksgiving and really all year long, each and every day, may these things be true of you. What do I learn about gratitude from this thankful Samaritan? Well, the first thing I learn is that gratitude ought to be thoughtful and observant. Because if you look at verse 15, the Bible says one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. That is, he's paying careful attention. As he is en route to the priests, just like the rest of the group, he saw that he had been healed, which then led him to stop in his tracks, turn around, recognize that Jesus was the source of his healing. Getting that clean bill of ceremonial health, that could wait. It wasn't so much at the top of his list as, as expressing his gratitude to the master was. He could present himself to the priest anytime. 
What was just a few minutes more? Because his spiritual obligation overrode his ceremonial need. And it's interesting that it's a Samaritan who understands this, and I assume that the other nine perhaps were Jewish, who couldn't get past all the ceremonial obligation to recognize that healing incarnate was standing right there before them. God in human flesh the one who's responsible for their healing. And so in this sense, this Samaritan, he's thoughtful, he's observant. And by the way, if I'm to be a grateful man and you're to be a grateful man or a woman, it will require that you be a thoughtful person. Not just going through life 100 miles an hour, always worried about what's coming next and that kind of thing, but just stop and be thoughtful and think about the plethora of ways that God has loaded you down. And the way that he does so every day, he loads your wagon with benefits. I think about material. Just In fact, this week, I, I took a notebook and I just sort of came up with just three categories, ways in which I've been so blessed by the Lord. And I just began listing out those blessings. The first category, I had a page, I just called it material blessing. I just started listing out the ways that I've been blessed by God in terms of just material blessing. I'm talking about things that we take for granted, like shoes on our feet. A roof above my head. A pillow to sleep at night. Central heating and air, can I get a witness? And you think about it, these are just things that we take for granted almost daily. But it's a token mercy of God in my life and in your life, and it's something for which I can be grateful. Material blessing. And not just material blessing, but what about spiritual blessing? You think about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, says that God has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you think about those spiritual blessings that are yours that are given to you by God through Jesus. You think about your salvation from sin. All of my sin has been forgiven. I've been adopted into the family of God. God is my Father. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of me as a believer. I'm a part of the family of God. My name is written in heaven. Jesus has overcome the grave, death, and hell, and I don't have to live my life with a sense of fear and foreboding because I know that there's a God in heaven who rules and who reigns, and Jesus Christ is king, and all things are working together for my good according to those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. And spiritual blessings, material blessings. And I think about relational blessings, and I started thinking about all of the ways in which I've been blessed relationally with people in my life. And I think about my wife and my two children and our families and close personal friends that God has blessed me with. Those 3 a.m. friends, I know that if I had a need at three o'clock in the morning, I could pick up my phone and I could call them and they would be there for me. Do you have any of those 3 a.m. friends in your life? You ought to be grateful to God that you've got those kinds of men and women in your life. I think about our staff here that I have the privilege of being able to work with. I think about our deacon body. I think about you. I think about the church. We've got this wonderful opportunity where God's brought us together as a community of faith and we have one another. We're not walking by ourselves through the circumstances of life, but we've got the family of God that we've been blessed with. Aren't you grateful for your relational blessings, spiritual blessings, material blessings? And so be thoughtful.
Gratitude is thoughtful. And then something else, gratitude is God-centered. Because here you see this man, when he turns around, he turns back. Verse 15 says he's praising God with a loud voice. Loud voice translates a Greek verb, uh, megaphones. It's the same word we get megaphone from. Now think about it. Just a couple verses before this, he's lifting up his voice in his condition of leprosy, asking for mercy, and now as a recipient of that mercy, he's lifting up his voice, but this time it's as a grateful worshiper, as someone who's experienced grace. Now he's expressing gratitude. That's what the grace of God does in a person's life where it's been truly experienced. We're not just thankful in a squishy sense of the, the term. We're grateful to the master. And so gratitude is God-centered. Specifically, it's Christ-centered. And then notice gratitude is overwhelmed by grace. It's the third characteristic of gratitude because verse 16 says that he falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So there in the dust, you have this thankful Samaritan who's been healed of a dreadful disease. He's humbling himself before the one who's responsible for his miracle. And really, this is an acknowledgement of divine royalty. And maybe this indicates that the man recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. We know that the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah. We know that uh, from John chapter 4, where Jesus has the exchange with the woman at the well of Samaria. And she expresses the fact that she knows Messiah is coming. Well, perhaps this Samaritan had also lived with that anticipation and expectation. Well, here he gets it. He recognizes that Jesus is the source of his miracle, and he falls on his face, overwhelmed by grace. And then the last thing, notice how his gratitude is expressed in faith. He falls on his face at Jesus' face, uh, feet, and the Bible says he gives him thanks. It translates a Greek verb. It's the same word we get Eucharist from. You know what we refer to? You know what the Eucharist is? It's sort of the formal way of referring to the Lord's Supper or communion. And it literally means to give thanks. So the idea is behind that word Eucharist and, and the way that it's been come to, to, to refer to communion, that it embodies this highest act of thanksgiving for the greatest benefit received from God, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. Literally, it's referring to grateful acknowledgement of past mercies centered around the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished. And so here you have this Samaritan who gets it. He recognizes, his eyes are opened, and he, he understands that, that Jesus is indeed his one and only hope and that Jesus is the source of his healing. And so Jesus asks the questions then, three questions. Were there not 10 who were cleansed? Where are the nine? Was none found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, someone who, who perhaps shouldn't get it and the very ones who should get it don't get it? And he says to the man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally, he says, your faith has saved you. And so this is so much more than just a story of gratitude because this is a story of salvation. And it's the gratitude that comes as a result of grace as it's experienced in someone's life. The man isn't saved because he's grateful. He's grateful because he's saved. And that's the difference. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning?
I think a good question to ask ourselves is this question. Do I more often than not manifest a humble, grateful spirit or am I filled with ingratitude? And don't think of ingratitude as simply being the attitude of a spoiled child that doesn't get what he or she wants from the store and pitches a temper tantrum on the way out the door. No, what if, what if ingratitude means it's something more subtle in my life and your life? What if it means that gratitude, rather than being at the top of my list of priorities, it, it's fourth or fifth on the list? And maybe at the top are those ceremonial obligations and the duties that I've got to be about and all this, that, and the others I've got to get done. Oh, and by the way, I realized that so-and-so did this for me this week and maybe I'll get around to expressing my gratitude. I certainly feel grateful. But listen, if it's fourth or fifth on your list of priorities, I'll tell you what will happen more often than not. You'll never get around to express your grateful, thankful sentiments. So what we need to do then is, as worshipers of God, we need to live with just this grateful attitude when we think about the grace of God and all that we've experienced in Christ and how that opens our eyes to the wonderful ways that God has used people to minister to us. Folks, let me tell you, no matter your circumstances, I can tell you, if you begin filling your minds with those kinds of thoughts, what God has done for you and who God is, you can't help but be a grateful, thankful person. And you'll discover that there's a joy there that you won't find anywhere else. Father, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful, Lord, for the precious truth of your word. And Lord, we truly want to be grateful people because of all people we have the most to be grateful for. We've experienced the healing and the saving grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may gratitude truly be characteristic of our hearts and lives manifesting itself in a thoughtful spirit and attitude, a God-centered, worshipful attitude. Oh, God, thank you for your goodness and mercy in my life. You paid the price for my sin through your own death. You defeated death, hell, and the grave through your resurrection. And I stand in your victory, and Lord, I've got so much to be thankful for. For any person this morning, Lord, that had never by faith repented of their sins and come to faith in Jesus, Lord, today, may they cry out the prayer of these lepers in Luke 17, Master, have mercy on me. Master, I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you rose again from the dead. And I confess you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.